Welcome to SatNuts, the podcast. I'm your host, Drew Klein, VP of Seacom Satellite Systems. What is a SatNut? SatNuts are the shrewd, engaging characters from the space and SATCOM business. Yes, they do exist. This podcast is where we discuss past decisions, current markets, and future endeavors. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by the ESOA, the EMEA Satellite Operators Association. ESOA was established as a nonprofit organization as the world's only CEO-driven satellite association and leads a coordinated and impactful response to the global challenges and opportunities the commercial satellite communication sector faces. ESOA serves and promotes the common interests of the EMEA region satellite operators who deliver communication services across the globe and are vital to bridging the world's digital divide, achieving the UN's sustainable development goals, and realizing 5G. Visit their website at www.esoa.net. That's www.esoa.net. This is episode 00007. Today's guest is Arti Halamani. Arti has been the Secretary General of the EMEA Satellite Operators Association, the ESOA, since 2004. Since joining the association, Arti has led the expansion of ESOA from a European association to one that represents the interests of 20 global and regional satellite operators based in Europe, the Middle East, and Africa. With more than two decades of experience in aerospace, starting at EADS, now Airbus, she was named one of the faces of satellite in 2014 by the SSPI and is a member of the World Economic Forum's Global Future Council on Space Technology. Super bright lady, very open and willing to discuss the advocacy side of the space and satellite business from a very interesting perspective. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Madam Secretary Artie Holomani. How's it going over there Friday afternoon in Belgium? It doesn't feel like Friday afternoon. All my meetings are one after the other this afternoon, starting with you. So are you are you working from home normally or is no by by chance i i live uh, literally what 3 minutes from the office and the office is empty so i i've been coming in every day oh that's great that's yeah. great well i'm proud to say that that um that you're the first lawyer i've had on this program normally we're normally we're talking with uh greasy salespeople like myself <laughs> but uh but uh since you're the first uh since you're the first legal eagle, we're going to ask you some tough questions. Okay, fine. So you're you're trained as a lawyer. You worked as a solicitor shortly after university, but then you then you did your MBA and you made the shift into into business development at EADS now Airbus. What what made you so promptly abandon the legal profession for for the business world? Drew, I I don't think I was really cut out for being a solicitor at all. Um, Look, I, I did it only because I'm Indian. You need to have a, a professional qualification of some kind. I was really good at languages at school, um, and I wanted to do languages at university, but my parents were so worried I'd wind up being a bilingual secretary and nothing more. So I, I, I looked up what courses you could do with a language, and I found law with German law. So that's that's where that came from, not from any desire to become a lawyer. Um, and when I was working as a um, um, a solicitor, I found plowing through contracts so boring. I, I couldn't stand it. I loved litigation. I loved the few instances where you would get to go to the high court and, and present something or, or ask for an extension or, or something like that. Um, so articulating, advocating a point of view, I, I like that. I was good at that. And that is actually 
what I am good at and also in different languages. And that is um, what manifests itself in what I do now, in fact. So do, do you come from a large family? Uh, uh, is this, uh, is anybody in your family a lawyer or? Everybody is in my family is either a lawyer or a doctor. That's the way it is in Indian families. Um, <laughs> no, plenty of, plenty of lawyers there, but that was just not my thing. So, so um, you often in your business have, have quite intimate discussions with the CEOs of many of the world's largest satellite operators. Uh, without giving anybody uh, away or without turning anybody in, uh, what are the general feelings that you're getting from them today regarding this crisis? And and is there anything that has changed with regards to their concerns, you know, pre-COVID as compared to now? Do you do you see anything specific? Um, absolutely. So it's true. I have the privilege of being able to speak directly with um, quite a few of the CEOs, and some of them have been have been or are my my chairman. You know, ESOA has a rotating system of of chairmanship, so you get different CEOs at different times, and and it's always I learn a lot by engaging with them. Uh, we can definitely see um, a change. Pre COVID, it was all about spectrum. We had just emerged from the World Radio Conference in November last year. It was about keeping CapEx down. It was about how do we drive um, customer growth in what is essentially a flat market full of competition. And then COVID arrived. And the first, second and last concern initially was the health and safety of employees, as I'm sure it was for many companies. But beyond that, what they've said to me is that it's about being able to preserve cash to weather the storm not being able to forecast the second half of the year is a big worry. Um, and of course, figuring out what the post-COVID business model looks like. Um, clearly, operators can't just carry on as they, they did before. They need to be more agile. They need to respond to employee and customer needs. But it certainly is very different to what, what it was before the crisis. Do, do you find that, I mean, you've been in the business now for almost, in the satellite business now for almost two decades. Do you find that the CEOs are more open and, and discuss things with you that maybe they wouldn't talk about with uh, uh, people who didn't run these advocacy organizations? One-on-one, -on -one, you get a lot of information from CEOs. And I appreciate that because it's really important that you know what uh, an individual and, and the collective body of individuals really, really cares about. But I think what's Important is the fact that they talk to each other about things that they wouldn't normally talk to each other about. So one CEO is not necessarily going to talk about what he what he has planned for his products or standardization or or spectrum, which spectrum is he going to launch future satellites in um, with another CEO. That doesn't happen. But when you identify these issues as relevant issues for the industry as a whole, then all of a sudden you have CEOs engaging in a dialogue with each other on them. So how important how important do you feel these members like we're we're a member Ccom is a member of SSPI and GVF and World Teleport and and uh, all these different organizations. How important are these member societies to the advancement of our of our cause, both both commercially and in terms of advocacy? There are many satellite associations and organizations around the world, and they I think they contribute in very different ways. So sometimes it's operational, like running training programs, but very often it's about convening industry experts who can establish common industry positions. 
And I think that's absolutely fundamental for us as a sector, because even when we come together, the satellite sector is really small compared with the terrestrial communications industry, for example. And we're not in the in everybody's hands in the same way that that terrestrials are. And that that necessarily means that, in fact, we're not as easily understood by users, by governments and by policymakers. That's a problem because those guys do take decisions. They do impact us. So we need to make sure that our voice is heard and that it's clear and wherever possible that it's unified. So in that context, I think association work generally is absolutely fundamental. ISOA provides thought leadership for the sector. We have shared initiatives and advocacy material with other industry associations, for the, often for their endorsement, so that we can have a unified um, voice globally, whether it's working on standardization for 5G um, or, or preparing documentation on, on the SDGs or or spectrum advocacy. So there's there's many things where we are at the forefront and we, we are eager to, to bring the whole industry onto the same page because that's good for the industry. And our CEOs, you asked about why is it commercially relevant? So that's where our CEOs come in. CEOs are not going to take time for you unless what you do matters to their own business priorities. So within ISOA, we have um, jointly defined our mission with the CEOs, and that's to ensure a growth-oriented business and investment climate for satellite operators around the world. That means that you're working to secure a favorable industrial framework, a favorable regulatory framework, um, you know, a, a positive political framework for satellite services. Companies can do that for themselves, and they they do to to um, you know, depending on the size and the amount of resources they have to different extents. But if you show up in front of a regulator as an association and you're advocating the view of an entire sector rather than one company with its own vested interest, that can be much more impactful for especially for a sector like the satellite sector. And, and what about like the ITU or the European Space Commission or the African Telecoms Union? How do you deal with them and what's their role in, in how you guys work together? So, so satellite systems operate, as you, as you well know, Drew, regionally or globally. That means that our narrative and our engagement with policymakers has to be beyond national. It has also to, to be regional and global. So you mentioned the ITU, which is a global organization, a UN agency, effectively. You mentioned the European Commission and, and ATU, the African Telecoms Union, which are both regional uh, players. We engage with, with both international and regional organizations in different ways and for different reasons. So think about the ITU. The first and most operationally relevant issue that is managed by the ITU is spectrum. Every four years, they convene um, the largest consensus building process in the world with the World Radio Conference. And that's where you have 193 member states coming together to basically decide which industry sector is going to have access to which frequency bands for future use and for growth. So ISOA plays a, an important role in working with the ITU between the WRCs, which are every four years, to secure the best results for our sector, to make sure that our members are engaged in the right study groups on the right issues, that we are putting forward common positions and so on. But Spectrum's just one aspect of the ITU. Another important directorate they have is on development. Um, and of course, supporting development and, er and emergencies by enabling connectivity is, is obviously one of the best things that we as a sector do. So we work to make sure that the the development directorates, initiatives and events reflect that in front of their member states. 
it's not i mean you don't lobby the itu for itself you 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 want to make sure they understand your 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 technology your sector what you do but ultimately it's it provides a platform for engaging with 193 member states at all of the different events and initiatives they do if you look at the European Commission, on the other hand, it's completely different. So in the last couple of years, the things that we've worked on has been to make sure that they continue to foster the role of satellite in 5G. And, you know, the European Commission was, thanks, I, I, I like to think, in a large part to our advocacy, the first policymaker in the world to say that 5G is not just the next G. It is a network of networks. And they made explicit reference to satellite as being one of those networks. So, so how do you, what, what is your thinking then about this? Because it's, it's probably the most defining uh, technical feature of our, of the SATCOM market going forward is the merger of 5G and SATCOM. What do you think is going to be the most important um, aspect of this merger? And how, how can it be made successful for, for all of us going forward? So it's clear that there has to be a convergence of networks if we're going to deliver on this seamless and ubiquitous connectivity, whether it's 5G or, or beyond. And I think for, for the satellite sector, it's about existing satellites and capabilities, as well as emerging systems and future systems. But I think there's one thing which is absolutely fundamental to success, um, and it's a real challenge, and, in, and that is the openness and willingness of mobile operators to embed satellite into their 5G networks and deployments. That is time critical. It will be too expensive to do if it's considered as an add-on later. And it's not obvious to them why they should do that. So that, I, I think, is, is absolutely crucial. Now, our members have done a lot of work to validate the technology, to show how satellite technology can respond to specific 5G use cases. And that has been trialed and demoed um, multiple times over the last uh, three, four, five years. What we need now is for mobile operators to get their hands on our technology and try it for themselves with real users in a controlled end-user environment um, so that they can start feeling comfortable with it, understand how this can actually benefit them, because they need us. They really need us. I mean, they have, they, they want to enable um, connectivity for cars. They want infotainment in cars. They want additional safety features for cars. I'm just taking that as one example. Now, are users going to pay OEMs for services if they come with some kind of a caveat in the small print that this might not work everywhere? That's not gonna happen. Also, they're talking about these latency requirements, which are huge. Now, how are you going to deliver the user experience um, that will be expected under 5G and beyond if you cannot pre-position content uh, and data close to the edge and even at base stations? And, and that's where satellite, you know, there's so many different ways that our natural and very strong capabilities um, play now a new role. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Seacom Satellite Systems. Seacom is a pioneer and world leader in the mobile auto-pointing satellite antenna business. The company has sold more than 9,000 systems into over 100 countries. The product line includes vehicle-mounted driveways, transportable case-based flyaways, backpack man-pack antennas, and fixed motorized products. All come with Seacom's proprietary iNet View controller system, which enables users to find broadband via satellite with just the push of a button. Seacom is also in late stage development, partnered with the University of Waterloo, of a revolutionary KA band electronically steerable phased array antenna technology. 
that has the potential to forever change the antenna business. The company is publicly traded on the Canadian Venture Exchange under the symbol CMI and on the US OTC under the symbol CYSNF. Visit the website at www.c-comsat.com. That's www.c-comsat.com. Yeah, this is uh, it's an interesting topic and it, it it somewhat rolls into what what I wanted to ask you about which was this article I read about new space. It's actually kind of a defining term for the future of our industry. Um, new new space and satcom businesses, like you're mentioning, uh, uh, connected cars, connected everything. But the the article was about how new space is filled with promises and lies. Um, you know, we're seeing right now quite a significant downturn taking place in our industry. COVID maybe is the is the pinprick of a minor new space bubble. You know, we've seen bankruptcies in the last uh, several months from major uh, industry-leading operators, like just this week, uh, Intelsat, uh, uh, newcomer NGSO constellations like OneWeb, and, and even the world's largest satellite service provider, Speedcast. All of these guys are going under. At the same time, I feel like new space is for real. We're, we're witnessing a significant shift in investment and in philosophy and technology and economics and so much more in our in our niche market it's becoming quite mainstream so so in your opinion how would you define the new space market is it for real and and what is happening to our industry with all of these uh, companies imploding from from the eyes of a policymaker I think we read the same article. I enjoyed the article, actually. Um, but I, I think I would start by saying that I, I don't like the terminology of new space as it as it is. It describes Leo broadband constellations, basically. Uh, why? Because it suggests that everything that traditional space-based capabilities have done is, is becoming irrelevant. And that's just not true. Um, I mean, of course, some things are on the decline, and but there is... There are still an absolute role for broadcast TV backhaul, probably even more with 5G, and even the the, the specialist communities that have been traditionally served by geos. Um, they're still relevant, and they're, in my view, going to remain relevant for many, many years to come. So for me, the new, new space should refer not to next-generation LEO broadband systems, but to the new space economy. And that means two things. First of all, how do we use and adapt existing capabilities to support and enable the apps and services that are demanded by 5G and beyond. Um, and that in itself requires innovation in terms of mindset, embracing new business models, and so on. But the other part of that is what additional technological innovations can the satellite sector bring to meet the needs of tomorrow's digital ecosystem? And that's where, yes, next generation LEO systems is one of them, but it's also about LEO for IoT, VHTS, standardization, nanosats, Earth observation, and, and everything else that is seeing a lot of investment at this time. But if you want to know what I think about Leo Broadband Constellation specifically, I'd say that they, they're not a proven reality for now. Um, you said that we've seen a huge shift in investment and so on. We saw that in the time of Teledesic, Skybridge, Celestri. There was, a, there was a huge amount of money that went into these systems then as well. So clearly money alone is not the answer. I mean, I very much hope that Leo Broadband Systems will become a reality. For one thing, I know from ISOA's engagement with NGMN that MNOs are counting on them. They are waiting for them. And what's more, 
I hate to think of all of those things flying around in the orbit for nothing. That presents a real risk for all satellite systems in the future. But I think we're not we're not there yet. And maybe you were in D.C. where Elon Musk was speaking. And I think the statement that he made really said it all. He um, Jeff asked him, what's your objective with Starlink or something along those lines? And he said, not bankrupt. Just just don't fail. Just don't fail is what he said. Yeah. He said not bankrupt because no other Leo broadband system has achieved that yet. So is it real? Not yet, but I absolutely hope it will be. Um, but money on its own is not going to cut it. Yeah, we, we need the technology, the smarts, the innovation. We need, you know, CECOM is working on a, on a special uh, electronically steerable phased array antenna system that is an absolute uh, requirement for these uh, NGSO constellations. So, so there's a, a lot of convergence of technology and um, innovation that that has to happen. You know, it se- it seems so obvious and and rudimentary to us in in the first world, and uh, that that reliable and affordable communications are are absolutely critical to advancing our society, uh, in in commerce and education and healthcare. As a, as a policymaker, how do you, as an advocate, how, how do you get across to those stakeholders? Um, and decision makers that that communications do transform people's lives for the better. How do you convince them that the funds that they have need to be allocated towards these resources? So I think there's the present situation with the COVID pandemic, it's been tough on all on all sectors and, and also there are examples, as you said, within our sector. Um, but from an advocacy point of view, we started by showcasing all the diverse ways in which satellite was being used around the world um, in, in the pandemic response. And that's that's how you and I got in touch in the first place. Um, but more and more, our engagement with policymakers now shows that, in fact, the crisis is shining a light on the billions of people who are not connected. Now, our sector has been talking about the digital divide for years, but others were not. You know, the digital divide has been seen as a long-term stretch target that's always going to be there. But the priority, the policy priority, the imperative was on rolling out 5G, enabling artificial intelligence, IoT, and, and, and you know, exploiting all of the efficiencies and growth that would come as a result of these innovations. But now it's becoming increasingly clear to pol- policymakers that connectivity for all in itself has got to be a priority. Um, I spoke at an event a few weeks ago, uh, and the Kenyan regulator, he said, look, Arti, we can celebrate all the things that we're doing um, all day. But what about the 70% of the population in my country who have nothing at all? So that that is the challenge, that is the opportunity. And what we need to do as a sector and what ISOA does do is, you know, talk. We need to present the satellite story. We need to showcase our best practices. Um, And there are so many of them, but it's not not about the technology. It's not about talking about satellite can do this, satellite can do that. It's about showing them the real impact that we have on the ground. I mean, you you, you say that you're not... um... You're not in the commercial side of things, but I think in many ways as an advocate, you have to be, right? I mean, you have to be able to sell our business and 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 our potential to these deep pockets. You still have to be able to sell it, even though you're not in the commercial side. Is that do you sometimes feel that way? That you still have to be a not just an advocate, but a salesperson? 
Yes, I mean, the parallel is a good one. And the way to do that is by talking about what they care about. They care, like African countries care about economic growth in their countries and, and transforming people's lives. They, they care about how do you change people's lives? How do you impact their citizens? Um, do you really feel that? Like, I, 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 I spoke about this before. And I mean, I, I went to an NGO a humanitarian site in Panama a few years ago, and, and it left such an impression on me as to whether or not these institutions and world governments are up to the job of best practice and fiscal responsibility and spending judiciously. Do you really think that the NGOs and the global governments that, that you know, improving, you know, telecommunications within their countries and regions, do you think they're up to the job or are they still failing under some of the more um, basic areas such as uh, uh, honesty and, and, and uh, truthfulness and, and corruption? Is that, is that an issue that you deal with at all? I think, um, I think a lot of NGOs with which many satellite operators works, work do get it and they're also part of the sales team in terms of of what we do, um, I I don't I think there's one issue, and I it's I call it a malady, which is called technology neutrality, um, which I find from a satellite perspective has often been used as an excuse not to not to put policies in place which um, would benefit the satellite sector, but which would have a direct positive impact on people's lives. So very often, example, uh, isolated communities, small villages, remote areas, where you know that other technologies are just not going to go because it makes no commercial sense. So there is a right answer. It could be, I mean, it might be satellite by itself. It might be satellite backhauling a Wi-Fi hotspot. It might be satellite backhauling a, a, um, a base station in a greenfield location. Um, but satellite is the right answer. And there should be no reason why a government cannot um, sort out its regulatory issues that might prevent accessing that technology or prevent that, that technology entering its country and put policies in place, maybe um, national broadband plans or whatever, that really allow us to do what we do so well and what they need. Uh, speaking of the old space that we talked about, uh, the, the recent the news this week was about Intelsat filing Chapter 11. Maybe you can just very briefly talk about some of the spectrum, uh, the spectrum issues that that our industry is facing in 2020 and beyond. Look, the the satellite sector has faced spectrum issues for a long, long time. I don't think anything is specific to this year. I, I mean, I don't want to comment on FCC proceedings and so on, which I know is specific to this year. But ISOA doesn't work. Um, we don't work on an annual basis necessarily. We work in a WRC cycle. Um, and that involves not only engagement at ITU level, but a lot of national advocacy. So um, C-band protection remains an ongoing concern. We uh, we did have a success at WRC 19. There is no new agenda item to study 3.8 to 4.2 for IMT globally. And that is something that they have been pushing on for uh, almost two decades now. But there are issues in regions uh, that we need to worry about. One of them is in region two, which is the ITU was split into three world regions, one, two, and three. One is um, Europe, Africa, the Russian Federation, and the Middle East. Region two is the Americas, 
and region three is Asia. And specifically in region two, there is intense pressure to identify part of the C-band for IMT at the next World Radio Conference. Now, that's a four-year process. There are studies that need to be done and so on. We engage in that. Um, but in region one, which is the, the, the primary focus of ISOA, um, there, is, there is an agenda item to potentially upgrade um, the mobile service, which has secondary status, to a primary status. So they would be alongside satellite. What that means in real terms is that um, mobile stations would will have to coordinate um, not just with existing and future Earth stations, but only with existing Earth stations. Um, and that's a problem because that will essentially risks opening the door for a future future IMT um, identification. Sorry, I, 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 what, what is IMT identification? Can you, can you clarify? Basically, the MNOs. It's five G. And are you seeing any interest in what's beyond KA band? You know what's coming next. QV. Yeah, so we secured uh, additional spectrum in forty fifty gigahertz, which which was really important for satellite. I mean, those are the growth bands. So we're we're living in a pandemic. You live in Belgium. What's what's the story in Belgium? How's it going over there? I know that there were a lot of, uh, in terms of per capita uh, deaths uh, and cases in Europe. Belgium was one of the the, the leaders, and I wonder if you have any. Do you have any comment about that? Is there a reason why we're seeing so many cases there? Uh, and, and how are things on the ground there right now? Um, Drew, it's, it's been remarkably civilized. Nobody in my family or immediate friend circle, et cetera, was infected. But, uh, you know, unless, unless you, you see that and feel that, it feels like something that you're just seeing and hearing about on TV. So here, of course, people are extremely cautious. Uh, uh, wearing masks. If you you're going to cross somebody on the street, then typically they will they or you will cross to the other side of the road to avoid proximity. And generally, it's been really civilized. We haven't had a shortage of anything in the supermarkets. We we've had uh, we've always been able to go out to uh, do essential shopping and so on. There's not been any restrictions of only once per day or things like that. Can you still get the French fries on on the side of the road, or are those guys all shut up too? They they are all gone for now. No, that uh -huh. unfortunately the we have great markets all over Brussels uh, and of course all the fry stalls. They're all shut. I, I know you love to you love to cook. Do you even have time to cook? And 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 if so, what's for dinner tonight? <laughs> yes, I I cook all of the time, uh, especially a lot more now. Uh, I've been doing a lot of baking, so um, I hate to admit it, but I have a very sweet tooth. So. Uh, uh, in one week, there is at least two cakes which are made. Um, dinner tonight is actually fish curry. Nice, nice. Getting hungry. I, <laughs> I know you're. I know you're um, also a spiritual person. You do yoga and meditation. W what do you think is the number one health tip that you've learned in your life that you could share that you follow every day? You know, I think I think the whole thing about being healthy is about having balance. So. There's not one health tip. There's a few. If you can make time for meditation, heartfulness, what I follow and teach is heartfulness. So if you can make time for that and a bit of stretching and yoga, even if it's only 10 minutes a day for each of them, then do it. But um, what I find is, is absolutely fundamental to my well-being is to be me and to not 
try to be somebody else uh, in my professional environment, um, which pleases uh, other people. I find that if I do that, I lose uh, I lose touch with who I am, and it really affects me in in very negative ways. Um, and on top of that, nutrition. Uh, so I I do intermittent fasting. I fast one day a week. Um, and so I think you, there's not one health tip. There's a few health tips um, that if we can embody and take on any of them, and if possible, all of them, then that that's good. Good stuff. Artie Hala, nice to chat with you and uh, hope we can chat again in the future and, and talk a little bit more about uh, what's going on in our industry. Artie Hala from ESOA, the EMEA Satellite Operators Association. Thanks for thanks for coming on today and chatting with us. Thank you, Drew. We only met two weeks ago, but look, we're having a great dialogue now. I know. Isn't that fun? Thanks a lot. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Drew. Nice to chat with you. You too. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Subscribe to SatNuts, the podcast. Also, rate and review on Apple Music, Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud, and anywhere fine podcasts are downloaded for free. Audio engineering provided by Ben Klein. Music provided by Bacon Jew. Special thanks to the entire CQOM staff. Stay nuts, everybody.